Welcome to Rethink, a podcast focused on the future of skilled nursing. I'm Amy Stulick, reporter with Skilled Nursing News. I'm joined for this episode by Kent Rogers, president and CEO of Cardon and Associates, which operates 19 communities across Indiana. He has been with the company for almost two decades, going back to when the Cardon portfolio consisted of five buildings, most in rural areas. Before we get to that conversation, I'd like to highlight the Continuum Conference, taking place December 7th in Washington, D.C. Aging Media Network is bringing all of its publications together for this special event, inviting our readers from across senior care and healthcare to learn the trends and strategies reshaping how care is delivered to older and complex populations as silos are being broken and integration is more critical than ever. Visit skillednursingnews.com forward slash events to learn more. And now, my conversation with Kent Rogers. Thank you, Kent, for joining us today. Uh, The first question that I have here for you has to do with company growth and operations. So, you know, I'm wondering if there are any new initiatives that you'd like to highlight today or more generally, you know, what you folks are most focused on working on for a day to day. Well, I think the uh, we have the benefit of uh, being strong in our day to day. There's, you know, in our business, two things, census and labor and we have uh, achieved 90% plus occupancy uh, since 2021. Labor is reaching an equilibrium. I would not say it's uh, uh, back to the old days, but it is certainly uh, a tolerable amount of agency. And so you've got to have that as a core before you can start thinking about new initiatives. I know there's a a number of our brethren that are still belling water and and addressing uh, huge agency and census issues. So uh, I just set that as a background as we talk about what is new in our company and what we're focused on. We're really blessed by having a strong core operations. So the initiatives, I think, what we've really shifted to over the last two years is um, not growing through real estate, which is really what we've done over the years, has been acquiring buildings and building buildings, primarily nursing homes, uh, also building assisted living and, and independent living. But our focus really now is providing more services to our existing customers. So our focus has been um, from a growth standpoint uh, on ancillary operations and uh, trying to find out ways that we can provide as many services to our uh, customers as we can and not let others in our building to do that. So um, that's through uh, a real focus on we acquired 100% of a pharmacy that we've uh, Formerly, we're in a joint venture. We have focused, that, that's that been a huge positive for us because for the first time in my career, we really have the customer 
what's best for the customer, what's best for the resident, not what's best for the nursing home or what's best for the pharmacy. And so a real one company initiative towards um, how can we best serve that customer and do that uh, in a way that relieves uh, the stress from the nurses the best we can. And we can talk about that more if you'd like on the details of the how the one company approach to pharmacy has helped. Yeah, let's dig into a little bit about that um, about that decision with the pharmacy. We had a partner that was a pharmacy company that managed our pharmacy, and but they managed the pharmacy, and they were not in our buildings every day trying to figure out what was best, what was most efficient for serving the customer. And so nurses, your highest valued and and highest cost employees in the facility spend an inordinate amount of time passing meds. Not only passing meds, but prepping to pass meds and auditing meds to make sure that what we pass is appropriate. And um, rather than being uh, in a room and eyes and ears and focused on the resident, there's so much time spent in med pass. And so we've been able to bring uh, pharmacy techs into the buildings and they do the preparation of the Cubex. They do the audit of the med carts. They um, do the organization of all things medicine-wise so that now they, they can't deliver that to the patient. But now the, the amount of time the nurses, a more costly resource, spend on all things medication is replaced by a uh, technician level uh, person who do a lot of the prep work. And we found some real efficiency and uh, very much nurse satisfaction in that process so far. Absolutely. Oh, that's really interesting. I feel like that allows your nurses to work at the top of their license as well, you know, with rising acuity in the nursing home that, you know, like you mentioned, MedPass is one less thing. Yeah. And, and the other piece to that, I think, is having our medical directors, our directors of nursing and the pharmacy folks meeting uh, on a regular basis and determining what the best approach is on medication changes and uh, um, just a whole a whole series of efficiencies and what the medical directors are now allowing the pharmacy to do um, with their permission. And again, a nurse isn't spending two hours on the phone trying to get a med change approved. Or uh, So that, I think it's efficiency which isn't as important in, you know, uh, a pure ROI dollar-wise. It's in the satisfaction and the, as you say, working at the top of the license for the nurses and making sure the customer is uh, taken care of on a timely basis. And at all three parties, the, the nurse, the medical directors, and the pharmacy are working in tandem. And was there anything that you wanted to mention about new initiatives before we move on? Well, I think the, again, the, we're working through the pharmacy and our companion care company 
to uh, do the follow me home meds, to be able to do the compliance packaging and uh, following the needs of our patients outside the nursing home has been uh, really helpful. Um, you had asked the question uh, on ISNIP. We can do that later, or do you want to talk about that now? Yeah, no, I'd, I'd love to revisit Cardon's ISNIP arrangement. And, you know, if there's anything more that you would like to say on how that's progressing. I think the approach with the ISNIP, we are uh, have a number of our buildings with Optum today. Uh, one of uh, my concerns with the current arrangement is you have the highest level practitioner, a nurse practitioner in the building serving a small percentage of your patients. And so we will be in the ISNIP business uh, by 2025. Uh, we will have a focus of providing the highest level of care to all of our patients and not just a component. So we have with our own care management company, our own nurse practitioner business and the ISNIP coming together to make sure that, um, that all of our residents um, benefit from having a nurse practitioner in the building on a regular basis. So we are committed to having a uh, ISNIP up and going by 2025. Excellent. That's great news. And, you know, just kind of sticking with innovation, you know, in terms of the pharmacy uh, changes and the ISNIP changes. I know that in previous conversations, you've said that innovation overall is Cardon's top priority. And how has that priority been put into action? I think innovation oftentimes is viewed as a synonym for technology. And I don't yeah. think it's necessarily the same, although technology plays a large part of that. Uh, we have uh, a focus on really the three things in our business from a technology standpoint. We have a business analytics department that is providing uh, real-time data to our uh, management team. It's amazing the difference between managing census the next day versus managing census every hour and uh, the staffing that goes with that. Um, the dashboard approaches that were sold by many organizations to us, uh, we've really found that uh, building our own and giving ourselves real-time data has been helpful. The thing that's probably got, though, the most um, discussion from the outside and others asking about us, we have three members of our RPA group, the Robotic Process Automation. And in an earlier discussion, I joked that, uh, that I thought a bot was a Star Wars character. And I appreciate people thinking that's a joke because, honestly, that I did. <laughs> I, I would like to say that's a joke. I'll call it a joke after the fact. I didn't have any idea what um, our chief technology officer, uh, Tom McClellan, when he introduced this idea, what they could do for us. And we hired our first um, RPA uh, gentleman, uh, 
uh, Rainer Browning, and he came in and he was uh, right before COVID, December, just before COVID hit. And I saw pretty quickly the fact that uh, our bot, Toby, is the, the name of our bot, um, the personification of our bot, um, ability to report COVID testing to the 14 different organizations that wanted results through an automatic process. That showed me that there was something there. But more recently, our automation is really focused on two things. One is the getting to yes is what we call it. How do we make a decision on whether we're going to take a referral um, as quickly as possible? What used to be a um, situation where you had 24 hours to make a decision, and then it was hours to make a decision. And now we we really need to be able to respond within about 20 minutes if we want to take a patient. And there's a lot that's required to do that, as, as you're aware, with um, background checks and insurance verifications and um, sexual offenders databases and all these different things that we've got to review. And Toby does that in a matter of minutes for us. Um, we do that all automated and it then gives our team all of that information within a matter of uh, five to six minutes to have all those sources checked. And then we have the opportunity then to make a decision as to the potential admission. That's been a, the, the biggest impact for us and a real, a real uh, component to why we are uh, at 90% plus occupancy in our buildings is because we can we know who we will take and we can get to yes quicker than some of our competitors can. And it sounds like it doesn't really affect workflow for uh, the nurses on the floor in a negative way. No, absolutely. It's, it's pre getting to the nurses on the floor, right? It, it really helps your folks that are on the admissions team that are trying to determine who will arrive at our building. Second uh, big one for us is, again, you go back to the pharmacy efficiencies. Um, the uh, in, As part of getting to yes, that whole program now feeds into the pharmacy. What are the meds? What's going to be needed? It's all loaded in as pre, pre-approval for the pharmacy so that they're ready. And when we accept a patient, the meds, order can be um, delivered immediately rather than uh, a, a secondary process. In addition, all the billing that goes back and forth between the nursing homes and the pharmacy are all automated now. So Toby um, takes the billing from one system and imports it into the other. Uh, bill paying is automated back and forth. And so those are just the basic um dailiness of of operations that uh you know that a program can do for you and i think that's been important um because of the the continued uh, challenge in in hiring folks you know that we more you can take out of uh, those redundant tasks the better I guess I would like to to point out one thing, though, that uh, 
related is we, it's not just RPA. You don't want to automate bad process, right? So we, we've really married the RPA process with the process improvement. Not really the, you know, you hear the term lean process improvement. I wouldn't go so far as to say that's what, uh, that we're highly skilled at, but we take mm-hmm. apart different processes uh, first to determine what should and should not be done. And then how can uh, the RPA guys automate what we should be doing? I like that um, comment that you don't want to automate bad process. I think that's something to keep in mind, you know, when um, operators are getting inundated with all of these different uh, ways to automate. And we've just determined that in, and we're, you know, we're a relatively small company. We have 19 campuses. Uh, mm-hmm. We have nursing homes in every uh at every campus, we have assisted living and independent living at many of them. But the owners of our company, and I'd be remiss not to say that, so Cardon was uh, founded by Carol and Donna Moore, Car mm-hmm. and Don. They were uh, husband and wife, formed the company in 1977. Carol was a uh, computer programmer when Programming was just uh, getting started, and he had a great passion for how technology could work. He bought the first uh, uh, desktop computer for nursing homes in Indiana, and everybody looked at it like, how are we going to do, what are we going to do with that? Um, Carol's license number is seven in the state of Indiana. He was literally at the table when the business started. Donna's is, I believe, 12 or 14. You know, they're, they're the pioneers in our industry. And so that, that core of a family desiring to provide high-quality care and to provide it in the best, most efficient way possible is something that's been part of our DNA for 46 years. Yeah, and no, I like that throwback uh, to the founding of Cardon and how it's, you know, tech and automation has been a part of your mission from the very beginning. It's very cool. So in the past, you've also talked about saving uh, $2 million through automation and adopting technology innovations. How did you calculate that savings and how did you achieve it? So we, we look at tasks that are done, uh, how many uh, you do a a time study of the work that was required, for instance, in getting to yes. Um, who, how many uh, hours were spent um, in doing all the background checks and verifications? How much do you pay that person on an hourly basis? And we've eliminated that. That's how we've uh, identified it's a pure um, uh, replacement of labor calculation. It's very a pretty pretty simple approach to it, but used to take six hours at twelve bucks an hour, and there's your savings. Uh, and the, the great thing about it is that's day after day, hour after hour. Uh, Toby never takes vacation; hasn't had a PTO day in uh, 
two and a half years, never calls in sick, and works on Sundays for free. So Toby's a great employee. Model employee you have there. Absolutely. <laughs> so you've also told us that margins are back at 2019 levels for Cardon. Uh, do you anticipate further margin growth in 2024? And how much do you think margins can grow or uh, will contract? I absolutely think the core business is in a, uh, in a contraction phase. The core business of a facility-based business with the continued increased labor costs, um, the government's focused on decreasing our revenues, both through rate and diverting patients to home and community-based services. And certainly the managed care providers, while they're limited somewhat in the rate that they can uh, impact us, they certainly are diverting the patients or reducing the stay. Um, the proposed staffing mandate, um, all, all negative um, trending to the uh, margins of our business, which is already a very low margin business. Um, so what I've been focused on, these innovative ideas or these bolt-on businesses are meeting more of the needs of our customers is not just a uh, wishful thing, it's a mandatory thing. In order to protect the core business, you're going to have to find revenue and income sources besides just taking care of the patient in a building as a government subcontractor. And let's stick with the staffing mandate for a little bit. You know, we've heard a lot about how the minimum staffing proposal will affect rural communities. Um, and, you know, what do you have to add to that in terms of access issues or other unforeseen circumstances? I'm going to maybe say a shocking thing, which is I support a staffing mandate. Okay. I, I have told the government, that's fine. I'm okay with a staffing mandate, but let's be real about it. So the mandate that's been proposed is impossible to implement. You are asking to um, create nurses that don't exist. And so the question I have is, okay, you can put a mandate out there. What is going to be the teeth to it? What is going to be the ramifications of failure because there will be failure. And if their goal is to close nursing homes, um, they could do it in a more direct path. I really have two primary concerns uh, other than that it's just, it's ridiculous and that uh, you're, you're mandating us to hire people that aren't available. But uh, I don't like any uh, measurement that is input versus output driven. I understand the concept to saying that if you provide more input, it will provide better output. But for Cardon, every one of our buildings 
when the new measurements come out, will be five-star quality measures, every one of them. The quality measures of how good are we at taking care of our patients. And yet our staffing ratings fall well below the Indiana average. So the Indiana average is 2.1 stars, and we're below that in staffing, and yet we found out a way to provide high-quality care. So I would hope that um, CMS would say, let's try to raise the bottom, leave the top alone if we're providing the high-quality measures. And the, the second piece of what's written today is the subjectivity of the enforcement. So today it says there will be X number of hours, and that number of hours is adjusted based on the patient's acuity in individual buildings. But there is not currently a matrix. There's not currently a measurement system that says if your acuity is this, then your number is going to be that. Right now, it looks like they're going to rely on the subjectivity of the surveyors to assess the staffing levels. And that's unacceptable. The primary driver of survey scores across the country is zip code. It's it's zip code because you've got uh, surveyors in this zip code that are entirely different subjectivity than in the other zip code. And so if you leave something so complex as this to their subjectivity, it's going to be a debacle. What I'd much rather the government spend its time on is generating more nurses. And there's really two primary uh, things I think that you could do to provide more nurses. Um, and I know it's not CMS's job, but it's the if the president is telling CMS to do this, how about president uh, open up the flow of international nurses into the country? We have uh, a number of nurses, uh, more than a dozen nurses standing by, ready to come uh, fill those roles that CMS thinks are so important, and we do too. Uh, we have a 35% vacancy in our nursing staff. We want the nurses, but it's going to be 18 months or more before those nurses could even get here based on current immigration policy. So let's do that. And let's uh, find a way through uh, nursing school reform to allow more nurses to be uh, graduated. Here in Bloomington, Indiana, Indiana University has one of the finest nursing schools in the country. And the primary limiter to the number of graduates that they can generate every year is the requirement to go through the OB pediatrics rotation. There are so few hospitals in the country now that are birthing babies. Nursing school doesn't have enough places to run their nurses through rotations. And I will tell you that we had zero babies born in our nursing homes last year. 
So I'm not sure why our nurses need to have an OB rotation. It's a, it's a soapbox issue, but there are real things that could be done to generate more nurses rather than asking us to hire nurses that don't exist. And then you said that as it stands right now, the proposal, you know, a lot of operators would fail to meet what is being asked right now. So then do you think that CMS will make concessions for the industry um, in the proposal's final version if it actually goes through with a minimum staffing rule? And then what are the top changes you would like to see to the proposal? Maybe you touched on this already, but. Yeah, I I can't predict what I think the changes are going to be because I never thought after the initial round of comments that we gave uh, as an industry, which were primarily ignored by CMS, they asked for help, they asked for our opinion and generally ignored uh, the suggestions that were made. So what do they do next? I don't know, but I think they will issue a mandate because it's good press. You know, during an election year, beating up the horrible guys in the nursing home and requiring staffing, you know, that that's a nice clickbait. That's that's a nice headline, even though nobody really understands that's listening, uh, that we'd like to, we would like to have more nurses. We strive every day to have more nurses. So I don't know what they're going to uh, change it to. But I do believe they will issue a, a mandate. My, my hope is that um, it's a long on-ramp to getting to what the numbers are supposed to be, that there is funding provided to hire the nurses, and that there is something done to create more nurses. Without the creation of more nurses, this is an impossible task to undertake. So then, given the eventuality of uh, minimum staffing rule, how has Cardon staffing initiatives and strategy perhaps changed in light of the minimum staffing proposal? I, I don't know that it's changed, but it's just focused further on on our approach to you have to grow your own. The mm-hmm. If a nurse is graduating from nursing school, their opportunities and pay to work in a hospital or a practitioner's office um, put us at a disadvantage. Our best approach is to hire high schoolers, get them right out of school, um, pay them to uh, while they're being trained to be a CNA. And then we invest hundreds of thousands of dollars over the years to help a CNA become an LPN, help an LPN become an RN. We now have grown six nurse practitioners through Cardon. Uh, three of which were CNAs um, and have grown through the system. So today the mandate says that LPNs don't count. And Mm -hmm. I'm 
fearful that's a trap that people are going to fall into and say, you've got to count LPNs and then they're just going to raise the minimum staffing. But for us, we continue to incentivize our LPNs to become RNs. That's not a, a magic um, immediate button, but we continue to work with as many of our LPNs as we can to become RNs, CNAs to become LPNs or QMAs and that investing in our people because it takes a certain heart to be in our business. And so if you hire a nurse off the street and they don't have experience in our business, it's a hard, hard business to be in and to take care of people. But if you've already uh, worked in our buildings as a dietary assistant or as a housekeeper and you love the business, then we will pay to train you up um, to work at the highest level that you desire to work in, in our business, because you already have the heart and we'll help provide the training. And then let's talk about hires from outside of the industry. Why is it so important uh, for you to hire from outside of the industry for your chief human resources officer position? And then are there other roles, leadership or at facilities that you think providers should be filling from outside the industry? Well, this is, I'm from outside the industry. 17 years ago, I had uh, been in a nursing home for about three days with my grandfather uh, when I was hired. And as the company grew, there was a recognition that um, there could should be a mix of skills, both folks from outside the industry and those that have grown up in the industry. Specifically to our chief human resources officer, Amy Haug, I was disappointed that as an industry, we just accept, well, that's the way it is. You got 140% turnover? Well, that's just the way it is. And I wanted somebody who would um, not take that as a a given. And I recognized that an outsider might end up curled up in a corner in a fetal position (laughs) when they found out how hard this was. But um, we brought Amy in from the hospitality industry. She'd worked in uh, hotels. She'd worked in education and had similar challenges. And she has done amazing things, has amazing energy and approach. And the education initiatives um, that she's generated, uh, they're uh, amazing part of that, something she had done uh, in her former job, and she brought new ideas into our business. Tom McClellan, who I'd mentioned as our um, chief technology officer, um, brought new ideas. Our CFO, Eric McIntosh, was 19 years in the newspaper industry. Our VP of pharmacy came from the hospital industry. So you bring folks with ideas that have worked in other industries and you mix them together with people with deep industry experience. 
our Chief Operating Officer, Greg Gormel, our Chief Growth Officer, Kendra Fouth Edwards, our Chief Strategy Officer, uh, Zach Cattell, have decades of experience in the business. And we found that um, that's a really great mix of bringing new ideas into a business that, um, yeah, I, I say about this business what our former CEO says. It's not hard to exceed expectations in our business because people have such low expectations. And that's sad. That's sad that people think that about our business. And so we strive to provide the highest quality of care to our residents and the people that take care of those residents. Yeah, I really like the combination of uh, folks from outside of the industry uh, paired with people that have had decades of experience already and just kind of like mixing the two um, and coming up with different ideas. That's something, something that's needed. So let's have a couple forward looking questions next. I know that Indiana is transitioning to a managed Medicaid system next year. And does this have you worried why or why not? It does have me worried. Um, as I've watched the process, uh, the state is uh, put out a timeline where they've said, the provider should be signing contracts with the MCEs. But the MCEs are saying, we can't do that until the state approves our manuals. The state is not telling them when they're going to approve their manuals. The state is saying, you're going to enroll customers in between January and April. And yet they're not going to approve the contracts with the MCEs until after that date. So I'm, I'm confused and worried about the process. But then going forward, let's assume they can make that happen by their July 1st, 2024 deadline. My initial worry from there is we're not going to get paid. And I can guarantee you we're not going to get paid on a timely basis, especially in those early months. We've been through this process before in different uh, iterations. And our business, our industry cannot afford to go 30 days, much less 90 days or six months without getting paid. And I'm afraid that's what's going to happen. And so we have been asking the state to agree to some type of retainer or some payment that is guaranteed to come through to our organizations until the MCEs prove that they can make payments. Um, the state is willing to consider that, but that is a big concern that I have is that um, it's coming. There's no stopping it, but you darn well better get us paid. And then going forward in the years to come, is, uh, you know, when you take 15 to 20% of the Medicaid money and give it to an insurance company and not take care of the most at-risk residents, 
that's a bad thing. And they're not going to do it through MCEs will have a limited um, ability to reduce rate, but they'll just uh, have the same approach as the DSNPs have on the manage uh, Medic- the Medicare Advantage program is they just won't let people come to our facilities. That'll leave our vulnerable residents where? At home? Somebody else to take care of them without pay? That's my concern is that um, we won't get paid. And once we do start getting paid, we're just going to have less uh, referrals. And those Medicaid residents who need our care are going to be the ones that suffer. And then speaking of Medicare Advantage, do you think that the growth of Medicare Advantage as a payer is hurting Cardon? And then if so, in what ways? Well, it absolutely has um, been a challenge for many years. Now, it started at the coasts and is, is finally becoming um, even more of an issue in the Midwest. Uh, more than 50% of our uh, premium pay or our rehab patients are now Medicare Advantage instead of Medicare. But we saw it coming. And many of our brethren um, kind of hid in the corner hoping that it would all go away. But as the, one of my favorite books, The Who Moved My Cheese, you know, we recognized the cheese was moved and we had to enter into agreements. Um, with these managed care providers. And I think our willingness in the early stages of doing so has been a real positive for us over the years. Uh, There's continued challenge with uh, more with uh, length of stay and um, not allowing us to even take the patient that concerned me. The Length of stay used to be, under Medicare, it used to be keep them until they can return to prior function. But now the approach is return to adequate function. It's not the same thing. Resident that used to stay for 30 days uh, now stays seven days, 10 days. That's the biggest impact of Medicare Advantage on our business. And so we just have to work that much harder to fill the beds instead of 12 times a year, you know, 30 times a year for the Medicare and rehab patients. And then one of my favorite questions that I like to ask operators is, you know, if you had CMS in a room with you right now, um, you know, what would you want to tell them about your challenges, what you're experiencing right now? I would, uh, two things. Again, I would, I would say to them, I support the concept of a staffing mandate rule, but this one isn't it. Please help us focus on nurse supply first. Help us find a way to generate the nurses first, and then let's pick an appropriate uh, level of staffing. Don't mandate something that's not uh, not even feasible. And the second topic I would think is that uh, the return to the three-day hospital stay is archaic. 
and unnecessary. We proved when that was uh, waived that from 2020 until this past spring that it works well, that we can take care of the patients, that you don't need the three-day hospital stay. And I'd like that to just go away. And people are worried, CMS worried that the ramifications of that, well, we've had it the three last three years and it has not diminished care in any way. And it's improved the throughput from the hospitals into the nursing homes and on to home health at a more timely and less costly um, system than what they've gone back to. And last question for you, Kent. This podcast is called Rethink. So what is something that you think needs to be rethought either at Cardon or at the industry level? I still hear a lot of folks in our industry and certainly the the talking heads on TV that believe that this um, coming wave of baby boomers uh, will be the salvation for our industry. Uh, If occupancy is 70% across the country, well, you've got all these baby boomers and that's going to save us. And then they in turn use the term silver tsunami. And I'm not sure, Amy, if you've ever heard of a good tsunami, but I haven't. (laughs) Um, So the government cannot afford to pay the same amount per patient as they currently do. There's no way. Easy math. If there's a thousand residents and they're paying a thousand dollars a piece, if there's 2,000 residents, do you really think they're still going to be able to pay $1,000 a piece? I don't know how that works in government spending, but I would say no. And we don't have enough staff to take care of those we're caring for now. So the good news is a tsunami or a hurricane um, isn't a tornado. You can see it coming, right? You can prepare for it. You can plan for it. So let's do that together, not just as a provider, but let's do it with CMS. Let's do it with the president. Let's do it with state Medicaid and plan ahead for, one, generating the number of staff that are going to be necessary, and two, figuring out now, how are we going to pay for all these people instead of waiting five years from now? and being hit with a tornado. I think that's a good point to end here, Kent. So thank you so much for taking some time today with us and for a great discussion. Amy, I appreciate it. And uh, thank you for your interest and your desire to share the stories of our industry. That does it for this episode of Rethink. Once again, I'd like to remind listeners about the upcoming Continuum Conference taking place December 7th in Washington, D.C. Visit skillednursingnews.com forward slash events to learn more and get tickets. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.